So creeds. So how would you define a creed? So sometimes I think we get a little confused between creeds and confessions. Um, you often hear those two things paired together. We talk about the creeds and confessions of the church. There's a difference between those two things. Uh, the basic difference, a confession, it's a lot longer. It's meant to be written out and to be a little bit more detailed. It is like a consensus document. It's a summary, but it's still kind of a detailed summary. So, for instance, the Westminster Confession of Faith has 30, is it 33 chapters, Paul? Sure. I think that's right. <laughs> I'm going to pick on Paul. You said on the front row, so it's your fault. Um, but so it's, you know, 33 chapters. Each one has all these different paragraphs, and there's all these footnotes of Bible references and things like that. So a confession is a lot longer, detailed document. It's meant to be written. It's meant to be read. A creed is different. A creed is meant to be spoken. A creed is meant to be a quick, short summary, and it's usually meant to be said corporately. It comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. That's where the word comes from, I believe. So actually the history of creeds comes from uh, actually, all the way back to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission. Go there from all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Um, the, the Nicene Creed versus the Apostles' Creed. You ever noticed or thought about how, oh, these look really similar, almost identical at times, and actually the structure is the same on both. So in both you have... I or we, uh, depending on what you're saying. I believe in God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and some stuff. Both creeds have that same basic Trinitarian structure. Uh, the reason for that is because they both have common ancestry, which is in the baptismal formula of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So basically, as the early church developed and as people were baptized, what would happen is, you can, we have records of this going all the way back to the second century, is that they would be baptized, they would be baptized with a threefold washing, sometimes a onefold washing, but usually in context threefold washing was used. And what they would do is they would stand there and, and the presbyter, the, the elder, whoever was there, would say, do you believe in God the Father? They would say, I believe in God the Father. Do you believe in God the Son? Baptize him. Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? Wash them again. So you have this threefold, and they're affirming, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit, according to that baptismal formula. Over time, what ends up happening is you have um, heresy popping up in the church. Um, you know, one of the greatest concerns of the New Testament is false teaching, countering false teaching, because even when the apostles were still alive, heretics were popping up already. It goes all the way back to the earliest days of the church. False teaching is nothing new. And as time goes on, it becomes necessary to make sure that people who are getting baptized and joining the church, you're clarifying what they mean by, I believe in God the Father, I believe in, especially in the early years, God the Son. What do you mean by that? And so as time goes on, that confession, I believe in God the Father, expanded a bit. So they would be catechized, they would be taught, they would be instructed right before they're getting baptized. They come, they say, I want to join the church, and they say, okay, we're going to teach you the proper way of the church, we're going to teach you this creed, and you're going to recite this creed when you're baptized. And that's basically what would happen, and that's why we have that same threefold structure across the board for creeds. That's why they're spoken. They're originally spoken because they're confessing what they believe before they were baptized, and over time that becomes a, um, becomes a corporate thing in the church. 
So definition of a creed, what is a creed? I, this is my own definition. It is a short summary of basic Christian belief and biblical doctrine. It's short, it's not lengthy like a confession. It's a summary, which is important. Um, you know, when you confess the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, you are confessing a condensed version of an entire way of thinking and theology and, and biblical teaching and doctrine and exegesis. Um, and it's basic Christian belief and biblical doctrine. Um, you know, creeds aren't trying to go into all the little itty-bitty details and, and doctrinal disputes. They're trying to hit on the high points, and we'll talk about that a little later. Any questions, comments about that? Okay. Just a summary of some of our major creeds. Um, the Apostles' Creed. Not actually written by the Apostles, uh, but possibly the oldest used creed today and certainly summarizes the Apostles' teaching. So there's actually an ancient legend um, that circulated in the early church um, that the Apostles, right before they went off into the world and scattered from Jerusalem and took the gospel to the nations, that each one contributed one-twelfth of their message and then they contributed that 12th and then they summarized it and they said ah yes this is the message we will go and we will preach and that total was the apostles creed that's a legend that's not true but it does show what the early church was very concerned about doing and that was building off the foundation of the apostles so while they certainly didn't write the apostles creed the apostles creed was self-consciously modeled after apostolic teaching Ephesians 2.20, Jesus says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He commissions his apostles as his authoritative, infallible teachers of the early church that gives us our foundational writings and teaching and preaching for the rest of church history until Christ comes again. The Apostles' Creed is called the Apostles' Creed because it's seen as summarizing what the apostles taught. Its roots, as far back as we can trace, go to, and something that's identifiable as like a proto-Apostles' Creed is probably like maybe late 2nd century, early 3rd century, something like that. It's actually based on the old Roman Creed um, that was used in Rome from who knows how long back, um, but it was Latin. It was written in Latin. Uh, second, The second major creed of the church, the Nicene Creed, 4th century AD. This one is my personal favorite creed. Uh, I, it's, it's certainly more thorough than the Apostles' Creed. It's more widely used than the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed is actually the only creed that's accept, accepted by all three major branches of Christendom, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox, they don't like Apostles' Creed. They reject it. Um, but everybody agrees on Nicene Creed. Fourth uh, century, so the original Nicene Creed, actually, the Council of Nicaea is 325, answers the Arian Controversy which would be a blast to talk about, but we don't have time this morning, unfortunately. Um, that's 325. Basically, that council's call to affirm the full divinity of the Son. Later on, it gets expanded in 381 into what we now call and know as the Nicene Creed. That's at the Council of Constantinople. Technically, the Nicene Creed, its full name, as we recited today, is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. We call it the Nicene Creed for obvious reasons. Um, we're not going to say all of that. Um, it's the most widely used creed in the church. As I said, it's more thorough on the Trinity and the Incarnation than the Apostles' Creed. Um, and that's just because of the doctrinal controversies that it was forged in. 
Uh, number three, the Athanasian Creed. Now, this is one that you almost never hear recited in churches publicly, um, but it is a great one. Um, it's long, which is why it's not recited publicly in churches usually. And churches that do recite it sometimes break it up into two or three parts. This one's late 8th century, early 9th century AD. It's named after Athanasius, uh, Bishop of Alexandria from the 4th century, who was a major figure in the creation of the Nicene Creed and Nicene Orthodoxy, that kind of thing. He didn't write it, but it's certainly in line with what he, he taught. It's whoever started calling it the Athanasian Creed, that's what they're trying to do is think of this guy Athanasius. Um, and its distinctive features, it's the most thorough creed with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity. This is very, very thorough Trinitarianism in this creed. Any questions, comments on our major creeds? Is there any advantage to the Athanasian Creed? I mean, I think one of the advantages to it is that it's thorough on the Trinity. Um, and I think it, it reciting it is it brings those Trinitarian doctrines like to home and it, it really gets into your subconscious and thinking. I mean, that's part of the purpose of creeds is, is it's this common thing that, that shapes the way we think and talk and exegete scripture. Um, I think the fact that it's been neglected, you can see in a lot of modern Trinitarian controversies. Um, actually, one of the hot, more hotly debated topics of the past hundred years, and even today, is Trinitarian theology. And there's a lot of bad Trinitarian theology out there. And honestly, I think a lot of it can be avoided if people just went back to their creeds and said, what has the church always taught and believed, and what does scripture teach? So. And were a lot of those, sorry, were a lot of the conflicts that they thought Jesus was like, was like God, Jesus, is, he's, sure he's God, but he's down here. Was that a lot? Right, yeah. So the Nicene Creed is forged in the Arian controversy. Arius, so Arianism, as a name of a heresy, means um, is the belief that Jesus was a created being but yeah. wasn't eternally divine. Yeah. Um, so, and actually, it's it's interesting the way you put that is Arius himself saw saw himself as exalting Jesus. He basically said Jesus was the first and most prominent and most glorious of all created beings and the created being through whom God created all other things, but not, still, equal, but not God. equal with God, right. And so that's the context of the most of these creeds is, is Jesus's fighting for the divinity of Christ. And that's the first round of the Nicene Creed. The second round of the Nicene Creed in 381, when they more fully expand it, um, that controversy is much more over the full humanity of Christ. Because then you have this guy Apollinarius from Laodicea pops up and is basically saying Jesus doesn't have a human mind and basically is teaching a partially human Christ. And so then they expand it even more. You also have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit becomes a dispute later in the 4th century, which is why they expand it too. I think it's really helpful to think about these, as you alluded to at the beginning. The, the creeds exist to provide clarification. When you say, I'm a Christian, the question is, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And so the Apostles' Creed is this nice, tight, formulaic, here's what I mean. But you could still affirm the Apostles' Creed and get all wonky on all of these other yes. things. And so as these heresies pop up, it, these additional creeds are the church's way of saying, no, that's not what we mean. Right. What we mean is this. Exactly. And it, it's just really helpful. And you see this even in some modern creeds where they're not really great 
or necessary a lot of times, but you can see the heart behind them is we're trying to be very clear about what we are affirming and what we're denying yes. relative to some modern controversy yes, in the church. Yes, exactly. And mm-hmm. even then, like, late into the 5th century, then you get more doctrinal disputes that are really over what does it mean to say Jesus is one person with two natures, and everyone is trying to argue, even the people who are heretical, like Nestorius, Eutyches, all these guys, they're trying to argue based on the Nicene Creed. Their foundation is they're saying, we're interpreting the Nicene Creed correctly, and other people are saying, no, 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 you're not. And then we get new creeds like the Chalcedonian definition, Council of Chalcedon 451, and you get all these other creeds, Athanasian Creed pops up. But like Paul says, like over time, there's there's a realization that, that new controversies, they require new clarifications. And it explains why the need for the confessions arose, which is we need even more clarity, but not things that we're going to memorize and recite publicly every week. Right. Th- right. Things that we want to learn for the long term and build and memorize for the long term, yes. but not put into our worship yes. service every So there, there's a dynamic of, of scriptural, of biblical teaching throughout church history. Um, and this isn't original to me, but um, is this idea of an implicit faith. That's not a great marker. Throw it on the ground and discuss. That's what I do. <laughs> They're accustomed to. Yeah. Much better, much better. So there's this dynamic in church history. You have implicit faith encounters heresy and becomes explicit. So you have something that's implicitly believed that Christians, we know we believe this, we act like we believe this, we, we talk like it, but maybe if you were questioned about it, you couldn't necessarily articulate it as much. Um, so, for instance, to put this in modern, in, in modern um, context, uh, think about like the modern debate over gender. So for 2,000 years, the church has understood gender and, and known what it means, know how that works out, know that the Bible has teaching on it. But, um, you know, how many people could have given an explicit definition, this is a man, this is a woman? Honestly, probably not a lot. Now, you understand what that is. You know what it means to be a man. You know what I mean? But can you, like, give this precise, well-thought-out definition and, and implications and all these things around it? Maybe not so much. And then what happens is heresy arises, false teaching arises, which forces the church to go back and say, okay, let's draw this out. Let's be precise about what we mean here. Because we know we don't mean that. But what is it that we mean? What is it that we're trying to say? And so this thing you implicitly believe encounters heresy, encounters false teaching, and becomes explicit. And the teaching and belief of the church is refined. And that's what's happening with creeds. That's what, like Paul said, happens with confessions. Is over time, false teachings arise. There's a need to counter it. We understand what we believe better. So let's look at some argument for the necessity of creeds. Turn to Exodus chapter 12, if you would. Exodus chapter 12 Um, in context what's happening here the plagues have just happened Um, the people of Israel have been released by Pharaoh to leave Egypt Um, and and God is instituting the Passover Um, the Passover is being instituted so um, hold on Sorry. 
Anyways, would somebody read verses 24 through 27 for us at Exodus 12? Just point at somebody. I, I read right, the sign all the time. <laughs> Got him. <'em>. Yes. <laughs> Exodus 12, 24 through 27. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads. Now, notice what's going on here. So God's people are being prepared to leave. God is preparing his people um, with this rite of the Passover. He's writing down the instructions on how this is going to work. The, head, the heads of the household are going to serve and minister the Passover to their households. But then, God is anticipating that at some point, your children are going to ask you, heads of household, what does this mean? What's going on here? And notice what he doesn't say. What God doesn't say is recite these Bible verses. Just, just like say these verses at them. No, he says, here is a form of good words, a summary of good words and way to explain to your children what this thing is that you're doing and why you do it and the significance thereof. Now, it's understood as you read this, it's, it's very obvious that God isn't expecting them to only have to say this, but it's, it's a summary of what they're essentially to teach their children. So it's assumed, yeah, at some point your kids are going to ask questions about it and they're not going to be exactly wrote, what do you mean by this service? As is every Hebrew child will grow up saying, what do you mean by this service? And then you say, it is the Lord's Passover. No, it, it, there is, he's saying, here are basic words, good words that you say to your children when they ask you questions, when they ask for a summary. Again, it's a command to have something like a creed, a basic summary that gives us a pattern of good words to say to instruct our children. Another command, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can flip over there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Paul, you want to read verses 4 through 9? Sure. And I can assign two going forward since I know names. Perfect. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. <clears throat> you shall love the Lord with the, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now notice what else is happening here. Once again, we have what is essentially a creed. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, and it's, this is, it's a creed of Israel that's named after the first word of this, which is Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Ad. It means Shema, listen, hear. It's, it's a creed. In fact, if you, if you can... If you look at it in Hebrew, so you have these, these two words that make up the beginning and the, and the end here. And I'm not just showing off here, I promise. Um, is you have these, um, hold on, that's not it. I was going to say it was a bad show off. It was a real bad <laughs> What are you doing? No. So what's interesting is the way it's printed in Hebrew, 
is you have this. You have these two words at the beginning, but you have this last letter of the first word and this last letter of the last word are big. They're enlarged. And actually, if you take these two letters together, it spells the Hebrew word aid, which means witness. It was the way that the Hebrews said, this is our witness to the world. This is what we are. This is what we're about. This is what we believe. All the way back to the earliest days of Moses writing the Pentateuch in the wilderness, the Hebrews had a one-sentence summary of what they believed. You want to teach your children what we believe? You want to tell the world? You want to know what is it you're supposed to be talking about over and over and over again? It's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's saying, do this, teach this, say this all over the place. Elaborate on it. Um, so even here, these are just two Old Testament examples to say, we're com- even from the earliest days of the formation of the people of God, right? So it's a proper nation of Israel is created with the Passover, with the Exodus, through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And from the very beginning of a corporate people of God, you have creeds. You have something that is a creed, and you have creeds commanded by God. Questions or comments on that? Flip over to 1 Corinthians. So those are some commands for creeds. They're implicitly commanded or more explicitly commanded. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, you want to make somebody read that? Kate? For I delivered to you as of first importance for what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared first to Cephas, then to the twelve. Great, that's great. Yep. So what do we have here? We have Paul giving an example of an early Christian creed. I deliver to you as of first importance. Now you think about Paul. We've got a lot of Paul's writings. He taught a lot of things. Um, I mean, there's several references in Scripture to, you know, about him teaching night and day and spending, you know, three years in Ephesus and, and, and going from house to house and instructing the people. And we have examples of his sermons and his witness. We have all this teaching by Paul. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, he says, all this gospel that I preached, all this message, here's the gist of it. Here's the big things. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and then he appeared to witnesses. Um, Paul's giving an example of a creed. He's saying, how do you summarize all this stuff? Here's how you summarize. And actually, these clauses, these are actually, um, these may look familiar to you if you're thinking of apostles or Nicene Creed. This is the source text for several clauses in those creeds. It's where we get some of those summary statements. Another place, 1 Timothy Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Didn't know you'd get your sword drills in today. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Great. So, you'll probably notice, um, if you're reading the ESV, that the way that that is typeset is different from the rest. It's sort of set off almost like a poem, like you see the poetry in the Psalms and that kind of thing. And there's a reason for that. It, it has a rhythm and has a flow to it and has a cadence. 
Some scholars think this was an early hymn um, that was written that Paul took. But either way, what it is, is it's Paul affirming some kind of early Christian statement that was a summary that was repeated that he thought was a faithful summary of what Christians believe of what the apostles taught. Again, it's just it's an example of a creed. The point here being that even all the way back into ancient Israel and into the earliest days of the church when the apostles are still walking around, even the apostles themselves are using creeds. They're using creeds. Um, next, turn to Jude 3. It's just another place where we understand the need for creeds. Jude 3. Oh, you want to call someone Nathan, out? you look there. Are you there? Mm-hmm. Yep. The entire chapter? No, Ju- no, verse, no three. Verse, three. verse 3. Verse 3. Sorry, Jude's a tricky one. one it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. No, verse 3. Verse 3. <laughs> just verse 3. Okay. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the important word to focus on here is that word, the faith. Now faith, the word faith, the way it's used in scripture, it has a few different meanings. There's primarily two. One is, um, and we'll talk about this in the sermon a bit today, the idea of sort of your own personal subjective faith. This belief that you have. You believe certain things. But the idea of the faith, the way it's used here in Jude 3 and also the way the word faith is used elsewhere in Scripture, it's not so much talking about, oh, your subjective personal belief. It's about this idea of an objective message. It is the thing that you have faith in. We use the word faith like that a lot. You probably don't even realize it. You're not consciously thinking about it a lot, but you talk about like, oh, he's a person of faith, or they, you know, the, the Christian faith. When you say that, you're assuming that there is this thing called the faith that has some kind of objective content, some kind of rational objective content, this thing that I believe in. And this thing that I believe in is very, very important. It is something for which, Jude says in verse 3 here, we ought to contend It is a thing that, you know, the book of Jude, it's all about false teachers. It's all about these false teachers who have been creeping in, and Jude is trying to counter them and talk about the need to to contend for the faith. But notice also the way he describes the faith. He says, um, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now that word or idea around that word delivered gets used elsewhere, and you have examples in your handout and you can look at those on your own time, but this idea of being delivered, the idea of being passed down, handed down. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read of the tradition of the apostles. There is this message, this thing, that is meant to be handed down. It's, It's meant to be passed on through sound teaching and through sound words. We don't reinvent the wheel. Every generation of Christians isn't called to go out there and to, to re-figure out what the Bible says and to rewrite all of church history and to ignore church or ignore church history and just, oh, it's me, my Bible, and Jesus, you know, no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. That phrase is itself a creed and self-contradictory. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't work out that way. 
Um, at the end of the day, it's we are a people of a faith that has been inherited, that has been passed down. How do you pass down a faith? Well, yeah, you pass it down this way. But you also pass it down through good words and good teaching. That's how you pass it down. Again, it is an idea of a creed. Questions or comments on that? And you just read a great example of that a minute ago in 1 Corinthians 15, where even Paul the Apostle is saying, I delivered to you what I received. Exactly. Just this objective thing, whatever it is, the truth of Christianity is being handed and passed. And he's a part of that tradition as well. Right. Even the apostles themselves, who we are building off of, received it from someone and saw themselves as a link in the chain handing on this faith. They receiving it directly from Christ, who is the source. They're the first link in the chain, but still a link in the chain, nonetheless. All right. There is a mislettering on your handout. D, the need for interpretation. Okay. I forgot to correct that from last time I taught this lesson. Uh, Need for interpretation. This is, again, we're still under arguments for the necessity of creeds. There is a need for interpretation. At the end of the day, interpretation is inevitable. You have to interpret the Bible. It's not enough to just have bare words of Scripture. You're going to interpret Scripture at some point. The mere fact that every person in this room is using an English translation of the Bible and isn't reading original Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic shows that you have to interpret scripture. Translations are themselves interpretations. The question is, what is your interpretation going to be? Is it a good interpretation? Is it a sound interpretation? Is it an interpretation that other people can agree with? Again, the whole idea, no book but the Bible, does not work because you have to interpret the Bible. I don't know if y'all have seen this um, it's, it's very interesting, it's really weird, um, kind of funny, um, disturbing all at once. It's, there's, it's a clip from Oprah back in the, I think it's like the 80s or something. It's like old Oprah, like really low grainy quality. Um, and the set is like really dated. But she has this guy on, he's like this kid preacher who, you look it up, it's really weird. And it illustrates this point really, really well. And and basically what he does is he just stands up and he like yells these King James Bible passages and like that's what he does for preaching. And his parents are there with him and they're like supporting him and like, isn't this great? And so he's like, you know, whoever whosoever believeth in me shall not perish, you know, but he shall have eternal life. And then Oprah looks at him and goes, So what does that mean? And he and the kid's like looking at her like what do you mean? And, and, and his dad's sitting next to him like, well, you know, interpretation belongs to the Lord. And, and then she goes to the audience, and the audience is asking, can you tell us what that means? And the kid just starts repeating Bible verses back at him. It's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest thing. But and it's unsettling. It's disturbing. It's sad that that actually exists, but it's also kind of entertaining. Um, that's why it's on TV. So, but, but it illustrates that, that point of even normal secular people understand you can't just say these words. I mean, you got to tell me what they mean. And when we, what we're doing with creeds is we're saying these, these are basic things that the Bible teaches, that the Bible means. So when we read God the Father, we know what does that mean? Well, it means God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. When you read Jesus Christ in the Bible, who is Jesus Christ? What does it mean 
that when the Bible talks about Christ and Jesus Christ, well, he's the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before our ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, so on and so forth. We have to interpret the Bible. You have uh, sub-point number two under that. Every heretic has his text. Um, the debates of the church over the centuries have been debates over how to interpret the Bible. If you go back and read the Arian controversy, Arius is trying to argue from the Bible, and he has a lot of Bible verses to back up his position, that Jesus isn't God eternal. He's the first of all created beings. And on and on and on it goes. Every early church controversy, every modern-day heretical controversy, all of it goes to Scripture. All of it, at the end of the day, are it, it, sometimes we think false teachers, they're going to be these people who pop up and are like, oh, I have these ideas, and look at my ideas, and we don't need the Bible. Like, that's not what false teachers do. False teachers pop up and say, look, um, this is what the Bible says. That's, that's how false teaching works. And so we need a way to agree on what the Bible actually means. Um, and then this should be uh, point E, the need for honest debate. Failure to write a creed is failure to reflect or be upfront and honest about your creed. Again, um, the, the whole phrase, no creed but Christ, is itself a creed. That person doesn't actually not have a creed. They have a creed, they're just not telling you what that creed is. They have a summary of what they believe. They're just not being upfront and honest about what it is. If you don't have a creed, you don't have a way of even having open and honest debate. Subpoint number two under that, writing it down, writing a creed down helps clarify our stances. It's a way to actually discuss, talk through, figure out what the Bible says. Again, if you're not being honest with me about what you believe, and you're not going to tell me what you believe, I don't know how to talk with you. We're not going to be able to have a conversation. We're not going to be able to get to the truth of Scripture. Because you haven't actually told me what it is you believe in and how you're interpreting the Bible. So those are arguments for the necessity of creeds. Questions or comments? I mean, would they, would they even know what they believe at that point? Probably not. No. Most, most people yeah. who say that kind of thing, it's yeah. this sort of pride and anti-intellectualism of, you know, oh, look at me, it's just me and my Bible, and I don't need anybody else. I mean, or it's pride. feelings-based, right? Right. Like, yeah. At the GROW conference, uh, those of you that came in Jim Van Erden's lecture on the catechisms of life and his point that the reason we learn and recite and use these catechisms in our household is because our households are being catechized. It's just the question of whether they're being catechized in our terms, our belief, our faith, our terminology, or the void that we're leaving in our silence is being filled with the world's catechesis, but everybody's catechized. Yes. At the end of the day, it's not a matter of, are you a disciple? It's whose disciple are you? Where are you learning? Who's teaching you? That's what it boils down to. Creeds remind us, they help us be upfront about this is what we believe, this is what we're learning. Usefulness of creeds. Creeds are not just necessary, they're very, very useful and helpful. People who sort of espouse the no creed but Christ, um, in some ways I pity them because they're losing a lot of wonderful benefits. A few points to, to put down here. Creeds keep focus on the main thing. Um, it's very easy when you are in the throes of theological controversy and, and debate and discussion, which is important and should be had, to lose track of the main thing. Everybody has hobby horses. 
Everybody does. You have a hobby horse. If you are a human being, you have hobby horses. So what's going to keep you from just doing nothing but ride your hobby horses all the time? Creeds. They're really helpful in refocusing, okay, what are the fundamentals of the faith? What are the most important things? Keeps the focus on the main thing. Number two, helps maintain unity. If you have a creed that you've written down, then you can realize, oh, I agree with you. We can be friends. We can all unite around what we believe together. Um, I, one author puts it this way, that if um, there was only one Christian on earth, there wouldn't be a need for creeds because he wouldn't have a need to explain what he believes about the Bible to anybody else. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of Christians around. And we got to be able to say and agree upon what it is we believe. It helps maintain unity. Truth is a source of unity, not division. There's a funny cartoon I saw um, uh, recently that, was, that said, you know, the difference between uh, moderns and Christians is your modern world likes to say, look at all this unity we have. Let's construct some unity around this, or let's, let's construct some truth around this unity we have. Christians are saying, oh, look at all this truth we have. Let's construct unity around this truth. That's the difference here. Number three, creeds remind us of the corporate nature of Christianity. We've already touched on this a few times. Christ, you know, Christians are a corporate people. There are no lone wolf Christians. We recite creeds together. We come together. We agree upon these kinds of things. And we say, yes, we all come together. We all believe this thing. Reciting creeds is one of my absolute favorite parts of any corporate worship service because I love looking around the room and realizing, yeah, I'm not in this alone. All these other people here believe this just like I do. I love, love that. Getting up, reciting the Apostles' Creed, and looking around, and as we're reciting, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, looking around. And in this world that is, you know, atheistic, deistic at best, you know, Darwinian, all this kind of stuff, it's great to see all these other people who say, yes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It reminds us of the corporate nature of Christianity. Number four, it relativizes the present. Creeds were written and forged in a different context than our context today, and that's a really good thing. This is one of the reasons history in general is important, is it relativizes the present. It makes us realize that our world, our controversies, our problems are not the end-all be-all. As important as they are, as big as they are, they're not the end-all be-all. Um, you know, it's, um, and you younger people, you'll learn this more and more as you grow up, but sometimes you look back and I know I'm going to do this with myself now. You know, you look back on some of the problems you had when you were younger and you think, why was I ever that worked up over that thing? You know, well, because you have this broader perspective and you realize that, you know, you get so caught up in the here and now. And when you have a lot of more life to look back on, it kind of relativizes everything. And, you know, the things that would have made you absolutely flip out when you were, say, 10 aren't, don't even give a second thought when you're you know 30 40 something like that right looking back on history helps relativize the present um creeds help us see okay what what are um what are the most important issues what are the most important problems in the church um what are the things that the church really spent the most time hashing out and trying to get down really really carefully 
helps us see our blind spots. They have different blind spots than our blind spots. They have different biases from our biases. Helps relativize the present. Number five, uh, creeds provide theological guardrails and boundaries. Again, what's the purpose of a creed? It's to say, this is a good way of talking about the Bible. And by implication, this is a bad way of talking about the Bible. What's a good way of talking about God? Well, calling him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a good way of talking about God. What's a bad way of talking about God? Other things. (laughs) All these other stuff. Um, It gives us words. You know, Paul talks to Timothy about um, setting a pattern of good words. It tells us these are good ways to talk about Scripture. Questions or comments about that before we jump into this last section? Okay? So just this last little bit here. These are just common objections you hear to creeds. Um, One of the reasons that this is a particular area of interest to me is that um, it's no longer just sort of the fundamentalist, independent fundamentalist Baptist world that creeds are becoming under attack. It's starting to creep into the Reformed world as well um, through a number of different channels. Um, There's a lot of people who uh, don't like creeds for a whole number of reasons, um, and it's increasingly becoming an issue, and I think it's just good for us to go back and be able to say, no, these are good, they're necessary from Scripture. I mean, it's good to be able to answer um, some objections you hear. Uh, objection number one, creeds place man's authority over the Bible's authority. This objection, using creeds places fallible, sinful man's authority over that of God's infallible word. What's the response to this? Well, creeds are a secondary authority that serve the final authority, which is the word of God. Um, no one, almost no one, qualify that statement, but at least a proper good use of creeds understands that these are not the word of God, and they need to be properly understood. Um, they are changeable. Um, there have been instances of creeds being ever so slightly changed in the history of the church. The Nicene Creed is an example of that. Um, but the point is that these are secondary aids to the final authority, which is the word of God. Again, what are creeds trying to do? They're trying to summarize the word of God. They're serving the word of God. Um, not all tr- Christian traditions um, are like this. Eastern Orthodox tend to almost put the Nicene Creed on the same level as Scripture. Roman Catholics, you know, famously put Scripture, Pope, and tradition on the same level of authority kind of thing, but we're saying no creeds have a good legitimate use as a secondary authority. And number two, sola scriptura. The objection, the Reformation motto of sola scriptura reminds us that the Bible alone is our authority. Response, that's not what the phrase sola scriptura means. Sola scriptura does not say the Bible alone is our authority. Sola scriptura says the Bible alone is our final authority, our ultimate authority. Sola scriptura was made and was a motto that was uh, formulated in response to Rome, who's trying to make three final authorities, scripture, tradition, the Pope, like this three-legged stool is the way you hear them talk about it sometimes. The motto sola scriptura isn't saying get rid of everything except the Bible. It's saying everything except the, nothing except the Bible is the final authority. So it doesn't, that doesn't negate the need or use of creeds. Uh, Number three, creeds imposes non-biblical words and phrases. The use of creeds imposes non-biblical words and phrases onto the Bible. We need to get back to the words of the Bible itself. Response, this isn't enough. Every heretic has his text and uses biblical words and phrases. 
There's still a need to interpret these words and phrases, which is what creeds do. Uh, Famously, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the very first worldwide ecumenical council, and the first council that gave a uh, universally used creed, very famously at this council, in the midst of debates, the Orthodox bishops wanted to come up with a creed that only used biblical words and phrases. And they found that every single time that they tried to insert biblical words and phrases, that Arius and the people who followed him would give it their own spin. And they would say, well, yes, Jesus is God. But in the same way that the Bible says, you know, you are gods, like you can sort of be called God because you're God-like. That's what we mean when Jesus says is God. And by the way, the Nicene Creed, when it says Jesus is very God and very God, that's what it's trying to say is, no, he's truly God, not just like sort of honorifically called God. Um, so in that's just one example and we could multiply the examples the point being that heretics love to say yes just these biblical words and phrases but then they put their own spin on and what they realize is we need interpretive words and phrases to help us understand what we mean what the bible says when it uses these words and phrases number four um this is another objection you hear creeds are exclusivist those dirty, mean creeds. Creeds are too exclusivist. They restrict our ability to interpret the Bible, what we can believe, and who we can have Christian fellowship with. My response is, exactly. Creeds help create clear boundaries to mark out who is in and who is out, which doctrinal positions are in and which are out, which biblical interpretations are in and which are out. That's, and I don't think this one would probably be nearly as effective at a, uh, such a well-grounded church like this, but there's a lot of people who just say, um, it's so mean and exclusive and narrow-minded to have all of these creeds and confessions that just say you have to believe this and you can't believe anything else. Um, and that's the whole point, is we're trying to create boundaries and markers to be able to distinctly identify positions and groups and interpretations and say what's good, what's bad, or even to begin to have a discussion between different camps and groups and things like that. Um, you know, there's a really nice book um, by a guy named Denzinger who a few years back compiled all the creeds, acts, declarations, papal bulls of the Roman Catholic Church, and they're all in this really big volume like that. And I actually find it to be one of the most helpful resources that's ever been created by scholars because it compiles things to help me understand this is what you believe as Roman Catholics. Now I can have a conversation with you. Now I can actually understand and interact with what it is you're teaching and saying. I'm glad you put all those creeds and confessions together. Now I know what you believe. And we can have this conversation. Um, or probably arguments. Hopefully not, but. It's, not a, it's not a popular view even in the church today, but it's critically important. When you're talking about something like the Nicene Creed, what is a Christian? If, if we believe that that is the only name under which someone can be saved, the, the church having the keys to the kingdom, we don't put people in heaven or in hell. But when someone comes to us and says, this is what I believe, we are saying that belief is sufficient for heaven or that belief is insufficient to save. And so the Nicene, Nicene Creed is such an honest way to say with someone Here's the boundary markers. It's not stuff we're making up. It's not preference. It's not, I won't be your friend. But if you're asking us as the church, should I sleep at peace at night 
with the comfort of heaven, or should I be concerned for my soul? Let's look at this together, right. and, and, and I can actually give you an answer. Exactly. Yeah, the Athanasian Creed ends with the phrase, this is the Catholic Church without which no one can be saved. Yeah. Which it boils it down to, yeah, why do we have creeds? So we know what a Christian is. It's, it's why the Heidelberg Catechism starts as it does. It's, right. it's a whole catechism of comfort. What is my only comfort in life or death? If I believe these things, I'm okay. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Less, any last questions or comments? So why is the creed not sufficient to fence the table? I would say the creed is sufficient to fence the table. Um, in Reformed churches, I hear that and you are a member of, right. so, member so I guess of a church. The creed, the creed, actually, I would argue itself encompasses that. Um, properly understood because the creed confesses belief in one holy Catholic apostolic church, implying if you believe that, you're, imp- you're, you're saying, yes, I believe that, and I'm part of that, and I'm in that, and accountable to that. I've been baptized into that, because it also says I believe in one baptism for the remission of right. sins. Right. Um, and so I would say that that really, at the end of the day, is expounding what the creed already puts up as boundary markers, which is that you are a member of a church. You're in the church.